Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 40. I very much like the heading that the Expositor's Bible Commentary gives to this psalm. Willem van Gemmeren titles it, The Joyful Experience and Expectation of Salvation. I think that's exactly right. David seems to be speaking here between two great acts of deliverance. One in the past, for which he is very thankful, and one in the future, about which he is very hopeful. And it is the former work of God on his behalf that encourages him to look for this new work of God in his present troubles. Psalm 40 is laid out in a typically Jewish way. It is a classic example of chiastic structure. Chiastic structure is just a fancy way of saying that this psalm, like a lot of Eastern poetry and like a lot of Hebrew psalms, has a sort of circular pattern to it. If you were to draw it out, it would almost look like one of those Babylonian ziggurats or step temples. You you walk up to the climax and then you walk down the other side and the steps going down correspond precisely to the steps you took going up. And so it is here. David begins by talking about his personal experience of salvation. That's step one up the ziggurat. Then he talks about how wonderful it is to enjoy God's protection. That's the second step. Then he talks about his own response and commitment to God. That's the third step. Then he talks about how gracious and how perfect God is. That, of course, is the climax. That's the top of the ziggurat or the center of the circle or whatever imagery you prefer. And then we have the parallel or mirrored part of the structure in the second half. David says, basically, oh, gracious and perfect God, I need you to be that God again for me today. And now we start stepping down the other side. I need you to forgive my sins, God, because I've made another mess. That's step three on the way down or step one, depending on how you want to count them. I need you to protect me, Lord, because my enemies are trying to exploit that mess. That's step two on the way down. And I need you to fight on my behalf again, Lord, just like you did in the past. That's step one on the way down. I'm sure you see the pattern. One, two, three, climax, climax, three, two, one, down. That's what scholars call chiastic structure. And it is the reason why so many psalms sound circular to our Western, very linear ears. Many of them kind of end where they began, and that's the point. And it works particularly well here, given the theme. David is recalling how God has worked in the past in order to stir up his own faith for a further deliverance from his present troubles. Do it again, Lord. Be to me now as you have been to me in the past. That's the basic flow and structure of the psalm. Now, in terms of the specific troubles that David is referring to here, we can't really say very much in terms of particulars. There is a brief ascription to this psalm, but it doesn't supply any biographical information. Given that David implies that his present troubles are at least in some part of his own making and in some sense relating to his own sins, 
It is tempting to place this psalm during the time of Absalom's rebellion and David's struggles against former friends and counselors such as Ahithophel. But that is merely an educated guess. Derek Kidner enjoys the uncertainty. He says here, We can be grateful that we know no more details of his desolate pit than of Paul's thorn in the flesh, closed quote. Kidner's saying there that the less we know in terms of particulars, the wider the application to whatever troubles and difficulties we are finding ourselves in. And I think that's probably true. Lastly, in terms of preparing ourselves to address this psalm, we need to figure out to what extent this psalm should be understood as a prayer of David and to what extent it should be understood as a prophecy of Messiah. The Apostle to the Hebrews explicitly makes a Messianic connection in Hebrews 10, 5-7, when he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Closed quote. So he's quoting there from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 7. So we have apostolic commentary directing us to understand at least those verses as being explicitly messianic. He puts those verses in the mouth of Jesus. The apostle then goes on to tell us how we are to understand those verses. He says in Hebrews 10, 8-9, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Closed quote. So there the apostle is saying that just as David found animal sacrifices to be ultimately inadequate, so too did Jesus, who instead offered his perfectly obedient and dedicated life as a sacrifice of atonement. We'll get to that in a minute. For now, we should just understand that we are reading a prayer of David, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it becomes a prophecy about Jesus. Thomas Scott puts it this way. He says, in this psalm, David seems to have intended to speak of his own case, but the Holy Spirit led him to use language which in its full meaning can be applied to none but the Lord Jesus himself. I think that is an absolutely perfect way of putting it. David is intending to pray for himself, but through the Holy Spirit, he also ends up uttering a prophecy about the life and ministry and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. With all that being said, I think we're ready to read it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the ascription and proceeding to verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. The Hebrew is very poetic there. It actually says, waiting, I waited for the Lord. So this is patient and persistent prayer. That's what preceded the great work of God in David's past. David waiting, waiting, he waited upon the Lord, and the Lord responded. Look at verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, 
and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. W.S. Plumer says here, The blessings coming on him who trusts in the Lord are multiform, countless, endless, immeasurable. Close quote. Oh, how blessed is the man or the woman or the child who puts his trust in the Lord. Remember, that's step two up towards the climax of this psalm. Verse five. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Verses 6 to 8 represent step 3 in terms of the structure of the psalm. David is here speaking of his own commitment to the Lord. God has rescued him. God has been his redeemer, his rock, and his fortress. Therefore, David is committed to the Lord. David is God's man. He will do more than merely offer an animal upon the altar. He will offer himself upon the altar. By the grace of God, David has a willing heart to serve the Lord. That phrase in verse 6, you have given me an open ear. In Hebrew, literally, it says, ears you have dug for me. Commentators go back and forth as to what exactly that means. It could mean that David is saying that his willing obedience is itself a gift from the Lord, a gift that David now gives back to the Lord. It could mean that. It could also be a reference to the practice of slaves who decided of their own free will to give themselves permanently to their masters. In such cases, the ear of the slave was pierced. The apostle to the Hebrews, quoting from the Septuagint version, seems to be going with the obedience theme. Christ offered his perfectly obedient life on the altar, just as David says he's doing here. In verse 7, David seems to be saying that his kingship was itself prophesied. He is, in some sense, the promised obedient king. Here he is. I have come, he says. But, of course, David didn't turn out to be the obedient king. And thus, this prayer becomes a prophecy that is ultimately fulfilled only in Christ. Verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Verses 9 to 10 represent the first half of the climax of the psalm. Here, David speaks of God's perfection in deliverance. God is a good Savior, David says, and I've been telling all my friends about it. Verse 11, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Here in the second half of the climax, 
we have the turn from former deliverances to present need. Please continue to be to me as you have been in the past. Verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So David's saying here, I've made another mess, Lord, as I am wont to do. I am in the pit again, Lord, and I require rescue once again. Verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. In these verses, David is calling upon God to protect him from the evil that others would make of his mistakes. Of course, it's one thing to suffer guilt and the natural consequences of our own stupid actions, but it is quite another when other people want to magnify our faults and to capitalize on our every mistake. That was David's situation here, and so he pleads for rescue. Verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. I am poor and needy. You are great and mighty. O God, make haste to save. What a marvelous psalm and what a useful prayer for us to have at hand as believers. The RMM plan has us reading two psalms today, and we've used up most of our time already, so we need to get right on with it. Psalm 41 begins this way, to the choir master, a psalm of David. That, of course, is a very typical ascription. In the Jewish division of the Psalter, this was the last psalm in the first book. Some say that it was occasioned by a sickness in David's life that he suffered during the time of Absalom's rebellion. But of course, we can't say for sure. What is clear is that David is ill. And in addition to his illness, he is having to deal with the enmity, slander, and villainy of his enemies. And so David does what all of us should do in such circumstances. He goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. To consider the poor is to do far more than just to see him. And it is to do far more than just to give to him. It is to think about and meditate upon what it is that causes poverty and keeps people down and what might be done to address such things. God delights in people like that and marks them out for particular care and blessing. David is speaking about all of these things because David considers himself to be such a person. In essence, he is preparing himself to exercise faith by reviewing his own position. He, he is saying that I have positioned myself to receive from God. 
I have been kind to the poor. I've lent to the poor. I'm ready to receive now from God. I'm in the right space. That's a fairly common sentiment in the Bible. Proverbs 19, 17, for example, says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So David is well positioned. He's in a good place to pray with faith for the healing that he desires. And so he does. Verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. So while David is praying for healing, his enemies are hoping for his death and replacement. That is an additional burden that David has to bear. Gossip and malicious slander can be every bit as devastating as physical infirmities. They can bruise the soul, and they often sit like stones in the pit of the stomach. David knows all about that. Verse 8, they say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. There is possibly nothing more hurtful than when friends or even enemies ascribe our illness to some particular sin that we have committed. That's what these people are doing here. They're saying that this sickness is a judgment from the Lord. Well, of course, people can never know such things. And therefore, people should never say such things. Jesus told his disciples that in John 9, 1-3. A sickness may be from God because of sin, but of course, we can never know that. We aren't capable of drawing lines from a particular sin to particular suffering. So we ought never to do that in our counseling. Job's friends tried to do that, and they were wrong. It shouldn't be attempted. A sick person should, of course, do personal inventory and seek out any unconfessed sins, of course. But his or her friends should not try to help with that incredibly painful process unless they are asked to do so. We have to tread so carefully here. David's friends, however, are not nearly so delicate. Verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Now, of course, we always pull back a little bit from these expressions of vengeance and retribution in the Psalms. We remember that the Apostle Paul said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And that's true. Individuals must never seek to avenge themselves on other people who have injured them. Rather, Jesus said, we should pray for them. But Paul does say that vengeance will come. It will come from the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He may do that in the meantime through the agency of the magistrate, as per Romans 13. In Romans 13, the Bible says that the king or the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. He has a commission from God 
to restrain wickedness and to punish the evildoer. Romans 13, 4 says, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So there it is. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, which will oftentimes come by means of the sword of the king. And David was the king. So it was altogether appropriate for him to ask God for the strength to carry out his commission. In addition, David was a type of Christ. And Jesus actually quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, in John 13, 18, speaking of Judas and his betrayal. All those who betray Christ, all those who slander Christ, they too will be brought into judgment. So the words of this psalm are legitimate. They applied to David and they apply to Christ. And you can pray them in that sense. You can pray, O Lord, do justice for me through the ordinary means of civil authority. And if not, Lord, help me to wait until the final judgment when every deed done in secret and every word whispered in the dark will be brought into the light and under your perfect scrutiny. I entrust myself to you and to your perfect justice. That's a entirely legitimate New Testament use of these verses. Verse 11, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. David is certain that he will be lifted up and ultimately vindicated, and he entrusts himself to Almighty God. The Lord is good. He does what is right. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there. We post daily encouragements and conversation starters. It would be great to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Before.